0: I'm Mari Frank, host of Privacy Piracy, which airs every Wednesday from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Intervining. KUCI.org on the net. I'm also pleased to present Orange County Sheriff News and Safety Tips. And we are so thrilled this evening. We have a very special guest from the Orange County Sheriff's Department. We have Sheriff Sandra Hutchins. She is the 12th Orange County Sheriff and the first woman sheriff in Orange County. She was sworn in in June 2008 and was selected from a field of 48 candidates after a nationwide search Since first becoming a peace officer back in 1978, her law enforcement career has spanned 30 years with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department, including her most recent position as Chief of the Office of Homeland Security. As Chief, Sandra Hutchins became involved with all aspects of local homeland security for the County of Los Angeles. She commanded more than a 1,000 personnel and supervised police service contracts for 40 cities. She was instrumental in the development of the Joint Regional Intelligence Center, a convergence of the Department of Homeland Security for the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department, the FBI, and the LAPD. And we are so thrilled you joined us tonight, Sheriff.
1: Well, thank you for having me, Mari.
0: Now, you came from very important positions in the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department. How does the Orange County Sheriff's Department compare with the Los Angeles Sheriff's Department?
1: Well, you know, the Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department serves a population of about 10 million, and there's 17,000 members. Their jail population, just to give you an idea, their average daily population is 20,000 inmates. Mm. Um, By comparison, in Orange County, we are the second largest sheriff's department in the state of California. We serve a population of 3.1 million. We have 12 contract cities. We have 4,300 employees, both sworn and professional staff. We have five jails with an average daily population of about 6,600. So we have certainly have our challenges.
0: Well, you've had a lot of challenges coming on board after many difficulties in the department and even a criminal indictment of our former sheriff. Right. So how do you deal with all of these challenges? It's got to be tough.
1: Well, you know, it is because, unfortunately, when you have any kind of crisis, if you will, on a department, in this case, the sheriff of uh, being indicted there's a spotlight on the agency and for good reason you know everybody becomes concerned about what's happening in that law enforcement agency what other impacts have occurred or what effects has that had on on the agency and so we we are operating, like I say, under a microscope, but we are becoming much more transparent as a result. We want to invite the public in. We want to talk about what we're doing. And we are uh, working very, very hard to repair that public image. And I have to say there's wonderful people on this department. The majority of the people working for this department are doing good work every day. I know, Mari, in your work, you meet a lot of them every day, and you know what kind of work they're doing. So, But but you're always kind of painted with that same broad brush, if you will. And you know, we're just going about the business of being the best law enforcement agency.
0: Well, we sure appreciate all the work that you do. And we're going to have you back next week to tell us more about your objectives. So thank you for joining us.
1: Oh, it's my pleasure.
3: Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She sits as an advisor to the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and California legislature on privacy and identity theft issues, and you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, NBC, ABC, CNN, O'Reilly, Geraldo, Montel, a lot of other shows. And uh, she did her own 90-minute PBS special last year called Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this Radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacypiracy. Good evening, Murray.
0: Good evening. Well, we have a couple of guests coming to us from the East Coast down in Florida, and they are the co authors of a book that I just finished reading, which was fascinating, called Handbook of Frauds, Scams, and Swindles. Failures of Ethics in Leadership by Serge Matulik and David M. Curie. Fascinating book. Let me tell you a little bit about the two gentlemen that I'm going to be interviewing from Florida. First, we have Dr. Serge Mutulik, who is a professor emeritus of accounting at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. He earned his B.S. in accounting from California State University at Sacramento And his doctorate from the University of California at Berkeley. So he was a California boy here for a while. He is licensed in Florida as a certified public accountant. And he's a member of the American Institute of Certified Public Accountants. Prior to going to Florida, Dr. Matulik held teaching positions at Indiana University and Texas Christian University. He also held visiting positions at the University of California, Berkeley and University of Texas at Denton and was a Fulbright Fellow at the University of Pula in Croatia. Dr. Matulik taught at the Krumer Graduate School of Business in Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida for 18 years, and he just retired recently in 2001. He's received many awards for Teaching Excellence, Service, and Scholarship, And he's the author of several textbooks and numerous publications in academic and trade journals. And he's currently a director and treasurer of the Mid-Florida chapter of the Fulbright Association. And he is also co-author of this handbook of fraud, scams, and swindles. And his partner in crime, so to speak, is David M. Curie. He is a Ph.D., as well, and he is professor of finance and economics at the Krumer Graduate School of Business in Rollins Collins College, Winter Park, Florida. He's won awards from national organizations for teaching innovations and from students for the quality of the educational experience. After receiving an undergraduate degree from the University of Florida, Dr. Curie attended the University of Southern California. All these guys out in California, they love us here, huh? Where he received a Ph.D. Dr. Curie has published articles and cases in the field of finance, international education, business management, and ethics. He's been a visiting professor at Group Hague in Florida, France and a Fulbright scholar in Croatia. And he is also co-author with the um, other professor, uh, Serge, uh, of this wonderful book called Handbook of Fraud, Scams, and Swindles. Hi, guys.
4: Hi, Mari. How are you today?
0: Thank you so much for joining us all the way from Florida. Well, it's great that you did this. So tell me, I really enjoyed your book. Now, tell me, what prompted you to to put this together.
4: Well, we've always been interested in uh, this topic. In fact, when we were colleagues at the Crummer School of Business, uh, we talked about some of the old frauds and swindles, and so we decided that uh, we'd like to put them together in a book.
0: Well, it's terrific. So who did you write this for? Who do you think would be interested besides someone like me?
4: Uh,
2: it was really intended for a very broad audience of uh, Necessarily cognizant with the technical uh, terminology, but uh, I think a lot of professionals would be interested, accountants, lawyers, journalists.
0: Right. All
2: of, all of them can uh, learn something from it.
0: You had some stories that were, you know, quite uh, public stories that we've heard about before, uh, the Ponzi schemes and, and the original Ponzi and others. Um, the whole idea of what's happening in society re- now with uh, the whole economy and all the fraud that's been going on, it's it's really pretty terrible, but h- how do you think be- the, your readers can benefit from this book?
4: Well, these kinds of frauds actually have been going on for uh, hundreds of years, and so one of the things that you uh, learn after you read some of these frauds is that uh, it's all been done before, and even though something like uh, Enron happens, or even though some of these other uh, companies in the United States or other companies around the world are committing fraudulent acts. It's nothing that hasn't been done before. And so uh, one of the things that you learn about the modern economy is that it's not as modern as you think. It's just a repeat of old things.
0: Yes, yes. It's you It's know, also
2: possible for readers
4: to get some awareness of how
2: uh, swindlers think, how scams are perpetrated, and uh, to recognize when they may be exposed to a potential swindle.
0: Right. And a lot of these people are really kind of sociopaths, right? Or they're they're real charming. I think of Frank Abagnale, you know the guy from Catch Me If You Can. Look at all of the frauds that that he was able to commit and get away with because he could be charming and he could be convincing and he could be so engaging, right? It's uh that's that's how they I think you're right that when you read about these things or you see a movie like that you start to say oh my goodness. That's where the
2: term conman originated because they essentially uh, instill confidence in in the person.
0: Right. Right. So let's talk about some of the great perspectives that you have in the book some of the stories. Um could you tell us about that? One one author you even wrote about himself.
2: Yes. We have one author who was uh, originally a businessman, started uh, out as a business, then eventually moved on to bond trading, and in his bond trading, he started taking bribes, and eventually became an international fugitive, ran away, left his family, and ran abroad, but eventually gave himself up, Uh, he was sentenced to five years in prison, paid $4 million of restitution and now he's a consultant and speaker. He speaks uh, about his exploits and tries to get other people to avoid doing the same thing.
0: Right. That's kind of like Frank Abagnale. He's, you know, he's worked with the FBI. And I had another guy on my show, uh, Kevin Mitnick, who was, I don't know if you know who he is, but he was the big FBI hacker. And now he does security training and has written several books on you know, how not to get scammed by people. So it's true that sometimes it takes one to know one, right?
4: Well, you reckon <laughs> there's a career to be had in doing something illegal and then turning around and telling other people how not to do it?
0: <laughs> it is it is pretty amazing, isn't it, that, that yeah, we, they can do it? We
2: another author uh, who was a small boy in Russia when uh, he worked with his family as uh, more or less peddlers. And he wrote about uh, some of the things that he had to do, which were rather unethical, but were absolutely necessary for survival. Uh, It was a very corrupt uh, economy, and bribery was a way of life. So it's very interesting that he felt that uh, what he did was very justified and necessary
0: and is isn't that true that that happens? I know there's that still happens over in russia doesn't it? Yes. <laughs> I mean it's still the same kind of thing. How about uh, the European versions of Enron? I know you had a story in there about that
4: well, there are several stories because uh, people here in the United States in, in the United States tend to think that uh, Enron is a peculiarly American event when in reality there are uh, other corporations around the world uh, that but have tried to do similar things, and eventually everybody gets caught. And in one example, for example, is um, a company called Vivendi. And Vivendi was a large uh, European company that was run by Jean-Marie Messier, and uh, he decided that he wanted to be one of the big owners of entertainment uh, firms around the world, so he decided to purchase companies around the world, and the only way to purchase things is... If you have enough cash, and the unfortunate thing is that he never had enough cash, so he was always borrowing and doing illegal things in order to come up with additional cash. And Eventually, you get caught at those kinds of routines, and uh, that's what happened to Vivendi. Vivendi used to own, for example, Universal there in uh, California, and Universal oh. Studios here in Orlando area. Wow. So It used to be called Vivendi Universal, and uh, so they had to divest themselves of Universal once uh, Messier was caught.
0: How about Parmalat?
4: Parmalat was is an Italian company, and it's been in the
2: news quite a bit. Uh, it was a milk company that also perpetrated the fraud. Essentially, they were cooking the books and uh, creating profits where there weren't any.
0: It, you know, how do people get into this kind of stuff? Good people, how do they go bad? I, I just, uh, what makes them do that? What do you think?
4: Well, that's a question for the ages, but it seems to me that one of the answers has to be greed,
0: because greed and
4: ambition uh, always make an executive think that uh, he or she wants to be king or queen of the world and always uh, own the biggest firm or or be in charge of more people, and so these firms uh, started out as, uh, a lot of them started out as small family-owned businesses, Mm -hmm. and then uh, through the generations, somebody in the family decided this was the time to go global or this was the time to start uh, amalgamating with other companies mm-hmm. and as soon as they started to do that then they ran into cash flow problems and then when you run into cash flow problems that makes you do a lot of things that you wish you hadn't. Right. Uh, and a very good example
2: is uh, Adelphia which was a family business and uh, it grew quite a bit and eventually went public but the family members who ran it uh, somehow never got the idea that they were, they were running a public company and they used the company as a personal piggy bank, uh, whatever the company made, they were not afraid to take the money and use it for personal use rather than pay to the shareholders. Right. And uh, now the father is in, in prison, and one of his sons and another son uh, had to pay a monetary penalty. In the long run, it didn't pay off.
0: Right. You even had an author that withdrew his article, right, from from your book, because he publicly, um, he was worried about harm coming to someone. What was that all about?
5: I'm sorry, I didn't understand. I said
0: you even had an author who withdrew his article from your book because publicity might harm someone who he mentioned in the article. Uh,
2: Yes, yes. We had a story that we would like to publish, but uh, the author eventually withdrew it. Because he thought uh, it may harm the reputation of the person involved, uh, the person involved was innocent of anything and was actually swindled. but uh, the author really thought that uh, it would still it might still harm somebody so they withdrew the story and we didn't publish it
0: right and and people should know that this this book is a compilation of great stories by different authors that that you both edited and put this together in a in a very I think it's very in, enticing and and you know enjoyable to read, even if you're not a, a student. And I know that people might think, "Oh, there's two professors that are writing it," but you but you put it together in such a way that it's really very readable for anybody. You don't have to be in school to enjoy it.
4: Professors tend to be a pretty boring lot.
0: Yeah, so <laughs>
4: tried to do is overcome that uh, complex. Right. And one of the ways we did it was by taking stories uh, that actually. Some people have written entire books about. Mm-hmm. So when you write an entire book about one story, then uh, it gets into a lot of detail and it gets into a lot of technical analysis. So what we did was uh, we asked for authors to write sort of Reader's Digest versions of these stories. And uh, so they're a lot shorter and they're more easier to read, but they, I think they convey the ethical dilemma and the uh, leadership problems and the frauds and the scams.
0: Right, and and you got the juicy stuff, so that's good.
4: <laughs> oh, <yeah>. That <laughs> well, was actually quite hard to get
2: uh, professors to write in a clear and uh, simple language, uh, more suitable for a newspaper than a journal article.
0: Right, right. Now I know I'm a professor myself, so I I, I appreciate that. You have we have to learn to write in a very uh, consumer friendly way, right? <laughs> it's, exactly. Exactly. Especially as a lawyer, it's really, you have to unlearn those skills, believe me. Um, How about the three perspectives of of HealthSouth?
4: HealthSouth? Yes. Yes. um, We wrote it from three perspectives because actually there are, uh, it was a personal perspective and then also the business perspective and then also the perspective of the person who was supposed to be or the organization that was supposed to be verifying that everything was going on correctly. And Serge is going to take over the story from here because he has some interesting things to say about health. Sleep.
2: Uh, the protagonist, the main character, well, Mr. Scrooge, uh, was one who was in charge and uh, uh, was certainly part of the main part of perpetrating the fraud. It was a, essentially a matter of cooking the books, uh, creating profits where they didn't exist, and and publishing them as if they were really a a very highly profitable company. Uh, The interesting thing was that he was acquitted uh, in the trial. And later, he was convicted on a completely separate charge. Uh, So the three stories are, one is about him primarily. Another one is uh, uh, from the point of view of the company itself. And then the third looks at the way that uh, the auditor of the company uh, Looked and saw the whole uh, whole events uh, unfolding, and uh, so it, since we had these three stories, we decided to put them all into into one section of the book, uh, so that readers could see the whole thing from three different perspectives.
0: Well, Serge, you're a CPA, and what about the CPAs of these big companies? D- really know what's going on or do you think that the inside controllers can hide this stuff really well or is there conspiracy? What do you think goes on with the, they have to have outside accountants, right?
2: Yes, they, they need outside accountants but uh, one of the things that a lot of people don't understand is that if the management really wants to hide something from the outside accountant uh, they can easily do it. An audit is not designed to discover fraud unless fraud is suspected and the auditor is brought in specifically to do a fraud audit. Uh, An audit is an examination of the uh, management's records, and if management wants to hide something, uh, they really can fool the auditor quite easily.
0: I see. I see. We are speaking with Dr. Serge Matuluk, who is a professor emeritus of accounting at Rollins College in Winter Park, Florida. And he is co author of Handbook of Frauds, Scams, and Swindles, Failure of Ethics and Leadership. And his co author, is David M. Curie, a professor of finance and economics at Crummer Graduate School of Business, Rollins College, Winter Park, Florida. So you guys have done a terrific job. So tell me, how did you pull all these stories together, and how did you kind of solicit these stories?
2: We wanted a very broad range of uh, stories that included recent cases and also cases that existed back uh, quite a bit far in history. And we wanted a very uh, large variety of situations. We looked for stories in business, in medicine, in politics, in science. Uh, uh, We suggested topics to some authors, uh, but uh, some of them came up with topics that we didn't even know about. And we wound up with stories from all over the world. We have stories from Europe, Asia, and America. So and the authors themselves are from all over. We have an author from Israel, uh, we have Asian authors, uh, European authors, and mostly american authors
0: yeah, and, and, and not all of the people. stories yeah, not all of the stories even relate to business. so uh, talk about for us uh, the protocols of, of the elders of Zion what 's that all about?
4: Yeah, the protocols of the elders of Zion was a um, Story that started back in the late 1800s over in uh, France, and um, it was taken over by a German anti Semite who said that uh, who wrote a pamphlet called *The Protocols of the Elders of Zion*, and the uh, pamphlet was a uh, theory about how a Jewish con- conspiracy was going was plotting to overcome the world, overtake the world.
5: Mm-hmm. So uh,
4: the pamphlet said that uh, every 100 years. Uh, this uh, collection of uh, Jewish elders was going to meet at a cemetery in one place and plot to overtake the world. And then uh, during the Russian Revolution back in the early 1900s, um, the uh, czars, uh, police force, used the pamphlet, the uh, elders of Zion, as a means of justifying, torturing, and uh, persecuting the uh, revolutionaries who were opposed to the czar. And then right after the First World War, I'm sorry, right after the Russian Revolution, is when uh, the uh, newspaper in London, the London Times, came out with an article that said, well, you know, this, this uh, Protocols of the Elders of Zion is uh, nothing but a made-up story. And it actually uh, was a uh, satirical piece that was written by someone in France opposed to uh, Napoleon III. It actually didn't have anything to do with the Jewish conspiracy. Wow.
0: So this is the kind of stuff that can go even so much faster on the Internet these days. You know, you, you, you read about a scam, and then it proliferates in a heartbeat on the Internet, whereas, you know, in the earlier age before the Internet, it, it took longer to get around. It still was passed around. But look what can happen now, right?
4: For sure. it's, it's, uh, actually, there aren't any checks and balances on the Internet that necessarily keep these things from happening. Exactly. And the, uh, protocols of the Elders of Zion is an example of that, because in recent years uh, those have been mailed around the internet as if they were true, and uh, for a hundred years it's been proved that they're not true, and yet uh, they keep, still keep circulating through the internet. Right. It
0: just yeah, the story just keeps uh, moving, right? It, yep. And you just can't get rid. When when something is on the internet, it never goes away. You also had a story about a high school student who started a carpet cleaning company. Why don't you tell a little bit about that?
2: Oh, yes. That's quite a famous case. Uh, Barry Minko was a uh, quite a bright high school student. He started a carpet cleaning company in his family garage and uh, never made any a lot of money on it, but uh, he decided at one point that he needed to show a bigger profit, so he invented uh, an additional business of restoring uh, buildings and uh, houses that had been damaged by fire. And uh, this was an entirely fictional business, Mm. but uh, the word spread around that he was uh, very uh, profitable. He showed up on uh, uh, front covers of uh, business magazines, And eventually the company actually went public and was listed on the New York Stock Exchange. (laughs) Uh, Barry was considered to be the darling of Wall Street, very successful, until uh, uh, one of his uh, carpet cleaning customers had trouble getting a refund and complained to somebody, complained to a newspaper. And when the newspaper looked into it, they found out that the entire business was built on a house of cards Hmm. It collapsed around Barry Minko, and he was convicted uh, <coughs> of uh, fraud and uh, sentenced to seven years in jail. He's actually out of jail right now, and works with the FBI has a consulting company, and he works at trying to discover frauds and prevent them and teach others about them. So uh, he's he re- mentioned in uh, hmm. a recent Wall Street Journal article Uh, where he uncovered uh, the fact that a number of executives of major American firms had falsified their resumes.
0: I see. Uh
2: Including one of them there in the
5: Los Angeles area.
0: Right. Well, we are seeing more of that. And now with people doing background checks and we've been interviewing some companies that do extensive background checks to make sure that the person really does have the credentials that they say that they have. In other words, they don't just look at the resume and call a few people. They go back and say, did this person really graduate with this degree or whatever? Because nowadays it's so easy to make up anything. Right.
5: right. Uh, in fact, as a
2: result of Barry Minko's work, recent work, uh, several executives have already resigned from their jobs.
0: I see. Yeah, you know, you were talking about that—that that his company was doing repair work for fires. You know, recently in California, we had these horrible fires, and every time these kinds of things happen, when there's a natural disaster, the fraudsters come out of the woodwork, don't they? That's right. And and they're like. They're like vultures. They, they take advantage of people who are very vulnerable, who desperately need help to rebuild their house or to get help with the insurance, to get their money from the insurance company. And we read about it every day. There's already a bunch of scammers out there that say that they'll get money for you, for you. You'll, they'll help you to negotiate to get more money from your insurance company to rebuild your house, and then they take your money and they're gone.
4: We have similar problems here in Florida, not so much with fires, but with hurricanes. Right. And uh, after a hurricane, uh, we recently had some people down here who were uh, convicted of scamming FEMA because they uh, submitted claims for damages to properties, and they didn't really have any properties to get damaged. And uh, FEMA paid out all of this money to these folks, and then it turns out that they didn't need to pay it out because the folks were doing it on a fraudulent basis. Hmm. So, yeah, it happens. It happens whether it's a fire or a hurricane or a tornado or anything else.
0: Let me ask you guys, because you're both professors, and you know I teach negotiations at the University of California and I teach conflict management, and one of the things I always try and incorporate into my class is the ethics in negotiations and the ethics of being truthful and all that good stuff. Do you believe that there is enough about ethics being taught at the universities?
2: I think uh, certainly at the Kramer School, we tried to incorporate ethics into every course. We didn't have specifically an ethics course, but it was supposed to be built into everything we taught. It, it's hard to say whether there is enough. I, I think probably there is never enough as long as people graduate and, and then uh, go the wrong way and create frauds and scams. Uh, But uh, how can one measure
4: when a school has taught its students well enough? Right. And the sad part is that uh, plenty of these people have uh, either had courses in ethics or they protest, uh, they proclaim to be ethical people, Mm
5: -hmm. and then they
4: turn around and do some of these scams. We had a fellow down here in uh, the Orlando area, for example, who was one of the big real estate developers in the Orlando area and made... uh, hundreds of millions of dollars, and it turns out that uh, he was scamming his colleagues in the real estate business and pocketing the money. And so here he was, a pillar of the community, and uh, somebody that you would think that everyone would look up to, and then he actually committed suicide when his game was up.
0: Right, right. They say that Florida and California And I think Florida, even more, is the fraud capital of the United States. Yeah, I've heard that. Now, I happen to love Florida, and being a Chicago kid who used to go to Florida every year, like the Snowbirds, I love Florida, so I'm not putting it down. And both of you guys have lived in California, so. but I don't know. There's something about Florida and California that kind of attracts all these fraudsters. It's all
4: the left coast and the right coast people, isn't
0: it? It is. So you had a story about a scam that almost led to the bankruptcy of San Diego. Why don't you tell about that? That's in our home over yeah, here. It
4: is, and it's, it's not so much a scam as it is an example of public officials uh, not necessarily um, following their fiduciary responsibility because the city of San Diego, back in the uh, late 70s and early 80s, uh, the retirement fund uh, experienced um, what everybody in a retirement fund back in those days did, and that was that there was a tremendous rate of inflation and whatever your retirement fund was supposed to pay out wasn't worth as much, so you suffered a loss of purchasing power. And so the city of San Diego got in the habit over the years of giving all of the retirees an extra check every year to compensate them for the amount of inflation, and it kind of got built into the retirement fund. Mm. The problem with retirement funds is that it's all built on assumptions about what you think is going to happen in the future. Things like uh, what's your retirement fund going to earn and how many people are going to retire and what their salaries are going to be, all those kinds of things. And you can't ever predict it, but what you do is you make assumptions, and then if you do better than the assumptions, that's fine, and you use those surpluses to cover the times when you do worse than the assumptions.
5: Mm -hmm. And
4: that's what actuaries figure out. They figure out all the proper amounts that ought to be put into the fund. And then based upon those assumptions, uh, the city then has to contribute a certain amount to the retirement fund to make it sound. And then uh, the city of San Diego wasn't contributing the appropriate amount, but at the same time it was making lots of promises to its retirees about additional benefits, and then it actually, I think, also put the health insurance plan into the retirement plan, which made the situation even worse. And so San Diego had what uh, many people thought was an underfunded retirement plan. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result, it caused a lot of the um, rating agencies like Moody's and Standard & Poor's to downgrade the debt of San Diego. And there were a lot of people who still think that uh, ever since the early 2000s, Uh, San Diego's been teetering on the verge of bankruptcy, closer to that than we are, so you probably know more about
0: it. Well, I have to tell you that I'm from Orange County, and we actually did have a bankruptcy. (laughs) So we had, there was a big brouhaha with Merrill Lynch, and the way our uh, finances were handled by our board of supervisors, and it was a huge scandal here. And we actually did have a bankruptcy. So I know exactly what you're talking about
4: that's not necessarily an example of a fraud. It's just an example of a situation where somebody is not doing the responsible thing that they are supposed to be doing.
0: Right, right. We are speaking with two wonderful professors, uh, Professor Serge Matuluk and Professor David M. Curie. They are authors of a very interesting book. They edited a bunch of stories, and it's called The Handbook of Fraud, Scams, and Swindles, Failure of Ethics in Leaderships, And it's really a fascinating book. One of the things that I thought was real interesting was what you talked about, um, one of our own founding fathers who created a hoax. Why don't you tell us about that? That
4: was Benjamin Franklin, believe it or not. Yeah, I would believe it. He was
0: a wild guy.
4: (laughs) He was a wild guy who was loved by the ladies, evidently. Yes, I kind of love him. (laughs) It's hard hard to picture Benjamin Franklin as being a Romeo, but he was. Right. But what he did when uh, in the early, I guess the mid-1700s, he was the editor of a newspaper in Philadelphia, and uh, he printed a few stories about a lady named Polly Baker who was uh, supposedly uh, the mother of five illegitimate children. And uh, the story was concerned how she was persecuted and uh, actually brought to trial for being the mother of these illegitimate children, but then nothing happened to the fathers. Mm-hmm. And so Franklin was actually pointing out a moral issue there—that the justice system was unfair to women, and uh, and didn't by not penalizing the men for the same crime that the women were being prosecuted for. And uh, so he printed that story, and the story went to from Philadelphia to New York and Boston and the other colonies, and then it even went over to Europe. And so those papers in London carried the story. And after about uh, 40 or 50 years, it turned out that. Uh, Franklin admitted that he had made up the story, so it was entirely fabricated, and uh, so so are you going to be mad at Benjamin Franklin for making up this story, or are you going to say, well, this pointed out an important social issue that should have been brought out? But then the interesting thing is that if you fast forward 200 years to the modern United States, back in the 1980s, uh, a lady who was a writer for the Washington Post newspaper published a story about Jimmy's world, which was a about a heroin-addicted boy who was about eight years old, I guess,
0: And they wanted to help. I think you said something in the article about that they wanted to help and have social services help this kid.
4: Yeah, that's right. <laughs> they, they wanted to find out this little boy so that they could uh, take care of him. And the mayor of uh, Washington D.C. was uh, was trying to track him down, and they never could find him, of course, because he was fictional.
0: And what she uh, should so have done, what she should have done, is kind of come out and tell, like Benjamin Franklin did, and say, "You know, I did this. This was a composite of a bunch of kids." and you know what I mean by the fact that she never she was willing to take that prize and not come clean I think it was her real downfall right
4: well I'm sure that was her downfall but uh, to me the interesting issue is if it was uh, okay for Benjamin Franklin to do something like that why was it not okay for Janet Cook to do something like
0: that yeah but Jan- but how I saw it differently at least the way I read it was Benjamin Franklin was writing, and he was always writing all these moral things, wasn't he? I mean, that was kind of his his thing.
5: Richard
2: yeah,
0: exactly. And so I think people kind of expected that that's he was a storyteller and he was full of baloney and they all knew it. And he never <laughs> pretended to be any different. She was writing for The Washington Post. Right. And she was making it. She wrote it as if it was a really true story, as if she was doing this documentary and and never came clean about, hey, what I'm really doing is putting together a composite of a bunch of kids that I've met with. And this is what they're going through. And this is the moral of it. I I think it's a different thing.
2: After she won the Pulitzer Prize, uh, somebody checked on her credentials and she had uh, uh, indicated that she had a degree from Vassar, which uh, was not true. And uh, so that discovery caused people to realize that she was not as honest as, as she could be, essentially, also the
0: discovery that this boy did not exist. Right. So she came out as a liar altogether. The fact that there was more than just the story. I mean That's
5: right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I think that it's a little bit different because of the of course I wasn't there with Benjamin Franklin but I do kind of remember the story that you wrote about. Now, how about the Ponzi schemes? Everybody, you know, we've had a ton of Ponzi schemes that have come out here in Orange County, California. And I even had clients that were hit by, you know, that in the beginning when I was helping them and I kept seeing that they were making, you know, 25% on their money in the beginning, this pyramid scheme. I didn't know. I said, where do you make 25% on your money? You know, I was almost saying, gee, can I get into this? And this guy uh, who who did finally get convicted, um, he was getting top movie stars to be part of this little scheme that he had. So why don't you tell us about the originator of the Ponzi scheme in Carlos Ponzi?
5: Well, the
2: uh, Ponzi scheme, of course, keeps uh, popping up uh, over and over. Uh, it's a very popular way of swindling people. Uh, it's essentially, it's a pyramid scheme where the perpetrator collects money from one group of people and pays it to the earlier investors and pays them so much that it appears very profitable. Ponzi was actually born in Italy. run out of people and uh, uh, what nobody figured out is that uh, the amount of money he was taking in there were not enough postal coupons in the whole world that he could have bought (laughs) Uh, and uh, the pyramid simply couldn't sustain himself Uh, uh, he was finally discovered and and of course convicted
0: Yeah. so why are there so many schemes named after him
5: because a lot of the schemes
2: uh, work the same way Uh, There was in one of the stories we have about uh, uh, an oil company, Uh, it was actually a fellow here in Florida, uh, who also ran a Ponzi scheme investing in oil, uh, in oil wells, and uh, he was collecting money from one group of people and paying dividends from that money to another group of people, and uh, sort of first group that was getting dividends, of course, spread the word around that this was very profitable and more and more people wanted to uh, invest in his ventures. But again, like all pyramid schemes, eventually you run out of people. You
5: right. start
2: seeing uh, uh, more people, uh, more, <laughs> more money has to be paid out than he,
5: he can collect.
0: And that's what happened to my clients. They were the ones that got in in the beginning. That's why they were getting 25% interest and then suddenly it dried up. And then everybody else who got in much later never really got their return. So, yeah, it's Your
4: clients got their money back. They should consider themselves fortunate.
0: Well, they did, but they did for a while there. Yeah, but the, yeah. Actually, make money because the,
2: the early investors do get some returns. Yes. And uh, yes. the late investors of course get nothing. Yeah. Uh, an interesting article recently in the Wall Street Journal about uh, Colombia, which is uh, trying to provide restitution to many people that were taken in by a policy scheme just recently.
5: Hmm.
2: And the state is trying to make it up to them by paying the poor people who lost money and, and not paying the wealthy who, who should have known better. <laughs>
0: Yeah, that's hard. But, you know, people are trusting. I mean, good people who are honest people are trusting. And even even people have trusted a lot of big companies that are going under right now, you know? A lot of companies that we're learning some bad things about. Let's talk a little bit about Arthur Anderson. They were a big accounting firm that was considered the pinnacle of ethics. But they're no longer even in existence, right? I mean, they were one of the big seven or whatever. What happened to them?
2: Uh, at at one time there was big 8 and eventually big 7 and they were one of the big 5 oh big 5 uh, it was uh, uh it, it was a really sad case Arthur Anderson was the auditor for Enron Corporation which was a major fraud in this country and we have some stories about Enron in the book but Arthur Anderson was their auditor and uh As often happens when a company perpetrates a fraud, they also sue the accountant, and the accountant is often charged with not doing the duty or being negligent and so on. And in this case, uh, an Arthur Anderson partner was doing some routine destruction of documents uh, that are simply superfluous uh, after an audit took place. And uh, on that basis, Arthur Anderson was convicted uh,
0: For destroying documents, right?
2: That's right. Uh, Now, uh, the sad thing is that Arthur Anderson was really the pinnacle of what an ethical organization was supposed to be. Everybody looked up to him. This, This was
0: reputation issue, right? That's
2: it, right. Uh, and yet it was one of the most reputable accounting firms that, in existence.
0: That's what's so scary about some, um, even the scams and, and the uh, gossip on the Internet. We interviewed a, an, a, a, uh, an attorney who is also a law professor, Dan Solove, who wrote a book called The Future of Reputation on the Internet. And one of the huge issues is, is like, when you have that kind of information that somebody um, spreads on the Internet, like, okay, Arthur Anderson is, uh, you know, they did all this ethics violations or whatever. Well, until the court case is finalized, you, you hear all this about their reputation, and everybody runs away. They get scared.
5: That's, right. That's what happened
2: to, to Arthur Anderson. Right. They lost clients so quickly once they were convicted, uh, they were essentially a criminal organization. Exactly, and clients didn't want to have anything to do with them, and with the loss of clients, they had to lay off people, and eventually, the partners also had to give mm-hmm. up
0: their ownership. Right, and they probably weren't able to go after anybody else for you know for disparagement at all, or right? I mean, they couldn't go back after anybody because they were convicted. So it wasn't right. like they well, could say business. No yeah, there was right. no hope of.
2: The firm was dissolved. They, they no longer existed.
0: Right. We're speaking with two professors, and they are uh, Serge Madulik and David Curie. And they are the editors and compilers of this wonderful book called Handbook of Fraud, Scams, and Swindles. Failures of Ethics in Leadership. You know, you also had a a story about um, how even physicians and researchers sometimes behave unethically. And you told a couple stories. And and I have to tell you, it reminded me, um, my former husband was a doctor. And when he first graduated medical school, he was offered a job with a, a medical professor. And I won't say what university. And he was doing some research. And he found that some of the patients were not doing well with the medication, and he started writing this down for part of the research. And the head research doctor told him not to write it down. And I, at that time, my ex-spouse was very ethical, and he said, "You know what? I can't. I can't do this anymore." And he quit the job. So you're right. I mean, there is a lot of pressure by these pharmaceutical companies when they have research they want their their uh medicine to look good
4: they, want results,
0: they? they absolutely the, do uh,
4: the articles that we have in the book are a slightly very vari- different variation on right that. one one uh, article that i'd like to talk about is uh, about the medical research that went on during during the um, late 40s and 1950s in the united states and uh, one experiment was about uh, the effect of plutonium. Back in the days when they developed the atomic bomb, they didn't know exactly what the long-term effects of uh, radiation exposure would be. And so the uh, federal government, the government of the United States, decided to sponsor some research on that topic. And um, the researchers would find people who they thought were terminally ill for whatever reason, and then uh, give them them massive doses, doses of radiation of plutonium so that they were exposed to radiation and uh, that included a fellow up in San Francisco for example who thought he had uh, uh, an ulcer or thought he was having a heart attack or something and so the prognosis was that he was going to die fairly soon so they started treating him for for, um, with these massive doses of plutonium and there was another fellow in North Carolina who had been in an autumn he was supposed to be recovering from the accident, and all of a sudden he was giving the, given these massive doses of plutonium. And so the uh, federal government was actually testing people without telling them that they were being tested and without uh, uh, asking for their permission to do it and without uh, getting the consent of the person being tested. And then another example is the uh, what's called the Tuskegee syphilis experiments. And this was a group of maybe uh, 400 uh, sharecroppers, a bunch of poor black folks from from, uh, around Tuskegee, Alabama, and uh, what was then called the uh, National Health Institute or the Public Health Institute, something like that, uh, decided to do some experiments about the long-term effects of syphilis. And so they never told these people that they had syphilis. And this was an experiment that began in the 1930s. (laughs) Never told them that they had syphilis. And then they would uh, observe what happened to these people and how the, degree, how the uh, disease progressed ah. in these people. And the real astounding thing is that a cure for syphilis was discovered in the 1940s when uh, penicillin was shown to be a cure for syphilis.
5: Mm-hmm. And they
4: never informed these people that there was a cure for syphilis. And as a matter of fact, the federal government started a, a national campaign that said stamp out syphilis, uh, get a shot for penicillin and stuff like this. And uh, when these when these men uh, said that they wanted to uh, take these shots, the, the people from the National Health Service said, "No, uh, you just have bad blood, and this won't do you any good." And they actually discouraged them from from uh, taking those shots. And so these were two examples of how the uh, federal government in the United States actually uh, conducted experiments without uh, contain, uh, obtaining the consent of the people who were very uh, experimented
0: on. And actually committed a fraud. Yeah, yeah. They actually and, did commit uh, remarkably fraud. Remarkably
4: similar to what uh, we thought the Nazis were doing so bad uh, during the 1930s, and here was the United States government doing essentially the same thing in the 1940s and 1950s. Mm. The good point about all of that is that eventually uh, those kinds of research experiments uh, became so egregious that the federal government passed a law that said uh, whenever you want to do any experimentation on uh, on research subjects that you have to inform them that you're going to do the experiment and then also get their consent so that they uh, agree to the experiment. Wow, now, the government also uh, was involved in a, an experiment with prisoners
2: where they were indu- inducing scurvy in them and, and studying the effects and this uh, particular section of the book also has three stories about scientists uh, who falsified data published uh, uh, research articles in medical journals and uh, uh, using false data or made up data and and this resulted in treatments that were given on the basis of their studies uh, when their studies were uh, completely faulty uh, there was a uh, scientists in Korea, and another one in Europe, and one in the United States, all of whom falsified data and, and published fake information that was viewed by the medical profession as, as being valid.
0: Mm. You know, guys, I deal with people with victims of identity theft quite a bit, and I try and help them to, you know, get their lives back. And and I have to tell you that every day I'm working with major companies that I will not mention their names But I get in and I have documentation of what my clients have written to them. And I have documentation of return receipt requested. And these companies say, we never heard from your client. Or they'll say, oh, they'll say something like, that was never done. And we've got maybe taped interviews where my client would tape the conversation. You know how when you call up a financial company, they'll say this is being taped. So he would tape it. And they are, it's scary to me that you have victims of fraud and companies lie right to their face. And I have over and over proven this to these companies that their fraud department has lied. And, you know, they just don't seem to take it real seriously.
4: And especially with the issue of identity fraud, we don't have a topic uh... A chapter about that in our
0: book. No, next fun. time ask me to write that one. <laughs> <laughs>
4: Super, that'd be great. But uh, I think it depends on each state, doesn't it, about the
0: state? No, yeah. we have federal law. We actually do have federal law. It's part of the Fair Credit Reporting Act. We do have very strict guidelines now, and we have the red flag rules. So so we do have federal law. There are some state laws that are different, and there are some states that are better, but but the federal law reigns. And what I'm talking about right now really is the federal law and the companies that aren't following it. But companies aren't
5: abiding by the law.
2: right.
0: Can we draw any lessons from all of your stories about modern America?
2: Well, one lesson is that uh, these things keep occurring over and over, and uh, they're not new. A lot of people get defrauded and say, how could could this happen to me? How did these people come up with this scheme? Well, the schemes are all old schemes that just come with new flavors. Right. Uh, So this is nothing new. It's been happening for
0: Depressing, <laughs> but I'll tell you, Mike and Lloyd are telling me here that it's really time to wrap it up. But I want to tell, uh, I want to thank you both for being on our show and sharing your wonderful stories in your book, Handbook of Frauds, Scams, and Swindles Failures of Ethics and Leadership. Thank you, Serge Matuluk and David Curie. You're terrific.
5: Thank you, Mari. It
2: was a pleasure. Okay, thank you very we'll, much. we'll keep yes, in touch. You be able to talk with you and
0: we'll look for your next book okay okay good night you've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net I'm Mari Frank host of Privacy Piracy join us every week from 5 to 6 p.m. right here on KUCI 88.9 FM Irvine and KUCI.org on the net visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests Download podcasts and write us emails about what you want to know about. Thank you for joining us. Good night. Stay private. Good night.
4: The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.